on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Wisdom and stillness. In this podcast, Eckhart talks with a live audience about the importance of wisdom. He says the first step is acknowledging the magnitude of what we don't know. He encourages us to step out of our thinking mind with its relentless judgments and interpretations and step into what he calls aware stillness. It's there that we have access to a deeper intelligence, one connected to our higher purpose, to realize our oneness with the totality of the universe. I don't know if you remember reading about Socrates, Greek philosopher who never wrote anything, he just talked. And Plato, who was one of his disciples, wrote about what Socrates said when he was asked, why does the oracle of Delphi call you the wisest of all men? He said, the reason why I'm the wisest of all men is that I'm the only one who knows that he knows nothing. Not many people actually have understood over the centuries what I see as the deeper meaning of those words. Mostly it's interpreted as pretending not to know, feigning modesty, which is a disguised form of ego. It's like saying, I'm the most egoless person of all. I'm the most egoless person of all. Nobody's more egoless than me, that's for sure. I'm the only one who knows that he knows nothing. I suggest it's not feigned modesty. There's a deeper meaning, and the deeper meaning is that all his extremely creative teachings, you might know that the teachings all are, he used to teach in form of dialogues with people. So they would ask him questions and he would ask them questions and finally the teaching emerged out of the dialogue. And often he showed that the original premise that somebody started with is erroneous, but it gradually emerges. So I'm the only one who knows that he knows nothing means, as I see it, that he started every talk in stillness. He did not begin his teachings with accumulated knowledge in his mind, which he then regurgitated. He was able to be so creative in his thinking, very creative thinking. In fact, many people say that we learned, Western civilization at least, learned how to think through the ancient Greek philosophers and especially Socrates. He taught us how to think. So he was able to think creatively, use of his mind. He had access to, to the creativity within him. And the only way he can do that is by not starting from knowledge, but starting from ignorance. Now, the ignorance, the way I use the term, is not 
the conventional meaning of ignorance. It's to step out of the thinking mind into just aware stillness. And in that moment, you don't know anything. That's how I start every talk. It always starts with thoughtless awareness. In other words, I have no idea what I'm going to say. That's another way of putting it. Thoughtless awareness sounds better, but the truth is, I have no idea what I'm going to say before I start. That is uh, the most vital state for you to become familiar and comfortable with that state of not knowing, which is there the moment you step out of the thinking mind with its continuous interpretations and judgments, then you are in a state of not knowing when you look at a sky or a tree or at another person and there's just a background of awareness to your sense perception. At that moment, you don't know anything, not conceptually, you know nothing. Because without thought, you don't know anything, there's no knowledge. And that is something that could hold you back because the ego is afraid of that state. It feels, I become as nothing. I become stupid. I no longer, I'm at the mercy of other people if I can't judge them anymore. And all kinds of things that are obstacles that can arise unconsciously and they very quickly take you out again of that state of aware, spacious presence. So it's good to look out for that. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. There is something in you that's not comfortable with it, is even afraid of it, feels diminished by it, and that's the ego. The ego feels diminished, of course, by not knowing. The ego has to say, I know. Even to utter the words, I don't know, the ego is, feels like a diminishment to the ego. That space where yeah, there's no conceptual knowledge feels, of course, I'm disappearing, and in a way you are. You're disappearing as a person, and where the person was, something else has emerged. The unconditioned consciousness has emerged. So as you practice with what I suggested here, when you sense perception without labeling, looking at another human being or listening to another human being without any judgment in your mind in that space of open, alert presence, that's the state of not knowing. And yet, that's where, where true knowing actually arises. The creative knowing arises out of there, and the moment may come when you suddenly, out of that not knowing, you say something. Or out of that state of not knowing, a thought arises, and it'll be a, a creative, a new thought, an, an insight. 
any creative thought or any creative insight or anything new and creative that comes through you into your mind needs at least a tiny space of not knowing and there are many people who are cre creative in a certain area of their lives and they don't even know that in that moment of creativity they are able to, to be alert and still. It might only be for a few seconds and then it comes. And anybody who is, has no access to it, and that is still the majority of human beings on the planet, they are, have no access to creativity. Their mind is repetitive. All their thoughts are acquired from the collective mind. There's no creative thought. They think these are my opinions, this is what I think, but they're just repeating what they have read, what they have heard, how their minds have been conditioned by the environment, by the media, whichever media it is, doesn't matter. So becoming comfortable with that state of not knowing. And that's the only place where what we call wisdom arises. Wisdom arises from that deeper place. And wisdom is what the world needs most now, not more intelligence, because intelligence itself does not solve the problems. Intelligence itself, without the deeper dimension of awareness, actually becomes quite destructive, self-destructive and destructive of others. So intelligence, you can be a, have a highly intelligent person who does very crazy things with his or her intelligence. I call that intelligence in the service of madness, which is often the case. But you need to be very intelligent to manufacture atom bombs. You need to be intelligent to manufacture chemical weapons. You need to be intelligent to many, many things. There are probably quite a few people here with high IQs, and that's good because you also have access now to awareness, then intelligence can be a very fruitful and wonderful thing. And there are many intelligent people who are tortured by their minds year after year after year. A highly developed mind, totally tortured by their minds, always totally absorbed in their mind. Just And in, in one small area perhaps they achieve certain things, the mad, so-called the mad scientists from the movies. <laughs> so become comfortable with not knowing and in that not knowing you get access to a deeper intelligence that cannot be measured with IQ tests. Now this not knowing of course is a not knowing that has transcended thinking. You have risen above thinking in that state of alert presence. There's another state of not knowing which is below thinking. And that's interesting too, and that is a simple, very, very simple person whose mind is relatively undeveloped, could be at that state of below thought. That person traditionally is called the fool in mythology. Many figures are called the fool. In more recent mythologies, it's uh, the hobbit. The hobbit is a simpleton who all the people that with him, they are more intelligent than he is. They know so much more. And yet the Hobbit is the only one who can perform this important task. So the, the fool in mythology has access to something that the more developed mind does not have access to. 
but the fool is below thinking, and yet the fool has access to that which also when you rise above thinking you have access to, but in a more conscious way. Now, you cannot, even if you wanted to, you cannot return to that state and become a fool. Your task is to dwell above thinking, where you transcend thinking, where you're able to use thinking, of course, but you're not used by thinking. You're, you're able to use the mind as a, when I say you, it is the deeper you, the consciousness that you are, can you then use the, this mind. Now, there are stories from Zen and, and also in Sufism of uh, spiritual teachers in disguise, a group of people or a Zen teacher who is working in the garden. And there, there's several examples of this actually happened. The, the spiritual teacher, by outside observers or visitors, being mistaken as fool, <laughs> because there are certain similarities. So those who, have, who do not have that insight will think, who, who is this fool? They, they were not told that he's a famous teacher. One person was visiting a Zen master and there was a guy working in the garden. He came in, he wanted to see the famous Zen master. There was this guy working in the garden and yeah, well, where is the master? Where is, where does he, yes, just go through there, through that corridor, and then you come round, and then you'll find him. So he walked into the house, and when he entered that room, the gardener was sitting on the chair of the master. <laughs> and to his dismay, he realized that the gardener was the master. <laughs> There's another story of a band of Sufis traveling and the Sufi teacher said, when we visit this next town and next person, let's pretend that you are the teacher and I'm just one of the servants. And so they went into the next town and they were received by a, the wealthiest man in the town. But this man had insight and he looked around and said, well, you may be the teacher, the one who was pretending to be the teacher, but this is the person who is at the deepest level, who is con connected to God at the deepest level, and he chose the one, the actual master who, who was pretending to be just a servant, so he, had, he could see immediately. All others would have said, yes, so very interesting. I've also occasionally been mistaken for a fool, and I'm very flattered. <laughs> If not a fool, a, a simple person, I know. <laughs> so let's see if there are any questions left. Probably not. <laughs> oh. Good to see you, Eckert. I was sitting there thinking that if I spoke with you, it would be much quicker to get out of my head. I want to ask you, because the thing that I've always struggled with since I was a little kid was who is God, what is God, and what's my relationship with God? And obviously you've addressed that throughout this whole event, but one of the things that I miss is not having a relationship with that experience with God. And I'm almost thinking that there is no God 
other than who we are. So anyway, maybe if you could bring a little clarity to, the, to me on that, that would be great. Right, thank you. It's comforting, of course, to feel that one has a relationship with God and for a long time until a human goes deep enough into the source of his or her own being, it can be a helpful and comforting thing and you can even sometimes access wisdom through it. There's me and there's God. Now, how do they come together? And that duality has been around for a very long time and only the mystics in all various traditions, the mystics in Christianity. Christianity was very careful to have you and God as separate. It's heresy, it has been, in conventional Christianity, to say that you and God are one. And only the mystics, the Christian mystics, said that, and they were condemned for it. For you, it is like growing out of childhood and you feel a little bit nostalgic because you're leaving this idea that you have a relationship with God, which is a childlike thing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing for a child to feel that. But as you move out of childhood, so to speak, spiritually speaking, there's a nostalgia around this. You feel that you have lost something when you no longer have a relationship with God. But that is only the the ego self that feels comfortable with having a relationship with God. What we are doing here is deeper than having a relationship with God. It actually is realizing your oneness with God. And then gradually you move into that and it's a little death almost because what dies is your mental concept of God. Many people who worship God, well, I would say most in all the traditions, uh, they actually worship a mental idol because they have a concept of God and then they worship, they speak to that and worship that. They haven't gone beyond concept and that is the fate of many, many, the majority of religious people have concepts. Now, if you have a concept, then you become very defensive about your concept because you cannot then tolerate because a concept is a thought or a group of thoughts. A concept that you identify with is, becomes ego. So it gives you your sense of identity. You identify with a thought or a group of conceptual thought. And then you feel immediately, because you've identified with it, you feel threatened by other concepts of God. And so you tend to make the other into an enemy because their concept of God is somehow different from your concept of God. And because you're identified with the thoughts, you feel threatened by anybody who questions that or who is different. And that's the dark side of a conventional religion often that uh, all the others, and not, not only one religion and the other, even different schools and traditions in the same religion, even in Christianity, there are many churches who claim that they are in sole possession of the truth or true relationship with God. All the others do not have a true relationship with God. So often these religious people seem quite egoless 
on a personal level, but they have given up their personal ego, but they have taken on a huge collective ego, which is their church. And as this collective ego, they regard all the others as inferior, if not enemies. So that's interesting. These, these people often look so spiritual or just very meek and egoless. And yet you realize very quickly that there is a huge ego there that they carry and it is a collective ego of their group. So our destiny is to let go of a conceptual God that you have a relationship with, because a God that you have a relationship with is a concept in your mind. There are people who feel that they have a relationship with God, and yet at times they are able to drop deeper, and then they have this feeling of deep, deep inner peace and aliveness and even perhaps some insights. And when they come out again, they, they still come back to having a relationship with God. They still interpret it in terms of relationship. They don't realize that they're going deeper within themselves. There's no other. It's the recognition of the oneness of all life. So I realize that you feel a little bit sad of leaving that stage behind and perhaps not even having a conversation anymore with God. <laughs> you can have a conversation with yourself, but you don't really need that. It's going into stillness deep within yourself and then whatever wants to emerge from there, then you become an instrument of God, so to speak, and what God, I don't use that word that often, what God does through you, which is the, the light of consciousness, not God itself, but the emanation of God that reaches you. What that does depends on where you are in your life, whether you become creative, whether you speak, whether you just emanate loving kindness towards other human beings and change the world in that way. We don't know whether you write or create a, a structure that does something, even a business that actually brings consciousness into the world, even though you, you might sell something, but somehow it's associated with consciousness. I don't want to go into this too much. How it manifests varies from person to person. It's the experience of something that transcends the person, the personality, something transcendent, the transcendent dimension, which is an alternative way of speaking about God. Because when you use the word God, it is a closed concept, God. Right. If I say, you can see the difference between using the word God, which is closed, and saying the transcendent dimension to the universe, the transcendent. Transcendent is an open concept, whereas God is a closed concept. In that sense, the transcendent is a bit more helpful and less misleading than to say God. So, but of course, if you've grown up with the term God, then there is an attachment to that and there is a reluctance to let go. 
It doesn't mean that you cannot use the term God anymore if you realize the deeper meaning behind the word. So that's a transition for you to the dimension of depth within yourself. And then you grow out of a more childlike way of relating to God. And, and that's good. In, in a more knowing way, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. know it. You know, it's not a belief. That's an important point. Uh, traditionally, God is associated with belief. And the mystics of all the religions, in, in Buddhism, the, the mystics would be mostly Zen, but the Zen people came in when Buddhism had already become very much a mental phenomenon and they wanted to get back to the essence. So when Zen arose, first in China and then in Japan, they rejected everything. They rejected the scriptures. They rejected all mental formations around the transcendent. And it worked, it was a very powerful thing. And then of course, when movement like that is around for centuries, it itself becomes formalized again and mental. So the belief is the transition from belief to actual realization and experience. That is the important thing. And, and the moment you experience, you no longer have a conflict with anybody else who has also experienced you. And you recognize the truth in other traditions. You can see, oh, there it is, there it is, there it is. As long as you only have belief, you're in conflict with anybody who has a different belief. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because a belief ultimately is ideology. Thank you. Thank you. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Good evening. My first question is about NDEs, near-death experiences, and what your perspective on that is. And my second question is your perspective on the consciousness of a human being while in the womb. Oh. So you're interested in the beginning and the end. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think they were. Yes, I am in the beginning. <laughs> What's at the beginning and what's the end like? Every human being is consciousness manifesting as a temporary form, taking form as what we perceive as a human being. So the human being itself is a manifestation of consciousness and ultimately no other than consciousness. The death experience, when you die, what happens? There's a question here that I might as well answer at the same time about death. I laughed a little when I saw it. Why is it that we need to awaken? We all die anyway. <laughs> that seems to make sense. 
Is it that you are still awakened after death in the next lifetimes in eternity? No, if you have experienced, I don't know if you have sat with somebody who died, who is dying, I don't know if you have experienced it, then you will have experienced, if you're able to surrender to that moment, it's a very sacred thing, a very sacred moment. And there's the moment when the transition happens between this body being inhabited by this field of consciousness, and then suddenly the body is just a body, and there's a huge difference, and you immediately see this body was never that being. It just looked like that being. So that, that being, as I said earlier, we're all ultimately invisible, and what, what, what you see of another person is relatively insignificant and not destined to survive. The person does not survive. The, the personal sense of self does not survive. But that which is deeper than the person in you as, let's call it, a spark of consciousness, that form, first you, you are the physical form, deeper than the physical form, you are the consciousness that inhabits the form. And that consciousness is inseparable from the one consciousness. There is no separate consciousness. Consciousness does not have a plural. There are no consciousnesses. Consciousness is a singular. There's only one consciousness that manifests, as we could call it, a ray of consciousness. You are this ray of consciousness. As a ray of consciousness, Consciousness is not subject to birth and death, so it is timeless. This ray of consciousness that you appear as this particular person does not necessarily immediately dissolve into total anonymity. It, it remains in most cases as a particular ray, but it's not the person anymore. What happens then, it, it returns briefly to the source, in the same way that a bee returns, goes to the beehive and deposits what it has collected. <laughs> and every human is the one consciousness experiencing and learning and evolving in some way. Even the most insignificant life form is the one consciousness evolving and learning. And what it has learned, not the details, but the essence it contributes something to the whole. That is an intuition that came to me some time ago, and uh, I believe it. there's some truth in it, but can, we can only speak of it in terms of an analogies. So your growth in consciousness becomes part of the one consciousness. The one consciousness, which is the consciousness of God, we're talking about things that you can't talk about, I'll do it anyway. The transcendent or God is totally beyond time and does not evolve because evolution would mean time. So the transcendent does not exist in, in our time. It is in a transcendent dimension, so you can't even conceive of it or talk of it, and that is God. Then God, the emanation of God, shines into our dimension and creates our dimension. And then God is an evolving being when, when it, God enters this dimension. And there's no doubt that 
there is an evolutionary process of consciousness happening in our universe. The ultimate, I cannot explain the ultimate purpose of it all, I don't know it, but the ultimate purpose of it all, you can only have little glimpses of it. You can never fully comprehend it with your limited mind or talk about it. So who you are in your essence survives, does not, ultimately there is no death. And when you die as an ego in this lifetime, this is called die before you die, then you already know that as a living experience that you in your essence are beyond death. And that's a beautiful thing when the ego goes, then you die before you die and you can sense the essence that you are. So I'm never going to die and you are not either. But of course the body dissolves, the body will dissolve. What is your level of consciousness throughout your life and as you die, that is an important factor in what happens after that. There are people who tell me that I don't want to reincarnate again. I don't want to come back. It's so hard. Please don't let me come back. <laughs> and then there are others who say, I hope I'm going to come back because I don't want to disappear into nothingness. I really hope I'm going to come back. Reincarnation, is reincarnation a fact? Yes, but I would like to bring reincarnation into something that you can actually experience at first hand here and now. The deeper meaning of reincarnation, as I see it, is you identify with form then you reincarnate. Carnate comes from flesh. Flesh means form. Carnate, chili con carne, it's, it's flesh. <laughs> it's, so you reincarnate, which means you identify with form. Then you reincarnate into a form. So the Buddhists striving towards the end of reincarnation so that you no longer are compelled, the, the consciousness that you are is no longer compelled to reincarnate into another form and have to go through another lifetime of problems and suffering. So the Buddhists are striving, they want to come to the end of this cycle of reincarnation where perhaps you're conscious enough to choose whether you want to reincarnate or not. You can say, no, I've had enough, thank you. <laughs> reincarnation is identification with form. How do I go beyond reincarnation? You, can, you have to do that here and now. And that means, that is what we are doing here, do not identify with thought forms in your head. That is the most basic reincarnation that happens continually to human beings is the complete identification with every thought form that comes into their heads and then they become it. <laughs> but if you have gone beyond the compulsion to reincarnate in this lifetime, which means identify with every thought and every emotion that comes up, when you have recognized the essence of who you are beyond form, that realization does not leave you. When you die, 
there is a freedom that comes, because, but the freedom you have already found in this lifetime, because you have died to this identification with form. So it's very important what and how you experience the so-called afterlife is intimately connected with your state of consciousness in this lifetime. So if you reincarnate, then you, right, another form comes into being, and then you enter the womb <laughs> and start all over again. Buddhists say that if they are doing good things in this lifetime, they will have a better incarnation next time, but they're still compelled to reincarnate. But the important thing is for us, what we are talking about, to keep it practical and immediately verifiable in your own experience. So your question really, the essence of this answer is, it is possible for you to stop the cycle of reincarnation in this lifetime. Yeah, now, in, in a way, that's what we're doing here. And then you will already experience yourself as that which is beyond form, and that takes away the fear of death, and that's a big relief. And then you can go on, and when death comes, you will almost welcome it. And then the rest you will see, I, I can't predict what you will experience after that and what you're going to do with your enlightened consciousness. So liberation from death is the realization that the essence of you does not die. And that's why we are here. And so I wish you well on your journey into the infinite. <laughs> Hi, Hekar. Namaste. I just wanted to start with a compliment that I find you very adorable. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I've been in a situation where my own 16-year-old child has not spoken to me um, almost one year now. So when it, when it comes to that uh, intimate relationship, it's very easy, like, I go into that pain body. Like sometimes I visualize that I'm back with my daughter and we're having a beautiful, you know, we had a wonderful relationship. And you said the answer for everything is in the present moment. I just wanted to, if you could more elaborate on that. And she has not spoken to you in a year? In a year. So it was a very complicated divorce we went through. Oh, right. And it was a custody thing. Right. And uh, so we shared like 50-50 custody. Right. And uh, so, I think whenever she's with the father, like, you know, the child is used to get back, in my case. So and how do you, what do you experience? What emotion do you experience? Uh, emotions I experience is um, obviously uh, there is a lot of pain. Yeah. And then again, I feel this, it's the attachment to the, her form. Like, you know, we used to, we used to be together. Yes. She used to be in front of me. And uh, so again, I feel that the connection is deeper not at the level of the form, it's much more deeper than that. But there are times when I miss that attachment. Yes. yes. Okay, there's a sense of lack that is uh, understandable, that you don't have that contact anymore. And that uh, sense of lack, I'm just going to amplify it a little because 
There could be other things also that cause, I mean, not in your case, but for other people present here who ha have this ex sense of lack. There could be a sense of lack because you don't have a partner, you ha don't have a relationship with a, and you feel something vital is missing in you or a child in your case that you don't have contact with and you, you sense like a, a hole almost inside you that leaves that. Eventually that will heal. So all you can do right now is to acknowledge that that's there, not fuel it too much with memories and thinking, but stay in touch with your daughter at a deeper level of pure love because the attachment is an emotional thing, and that's fine. But love is not an emotion. I mean, love often pretends, to, emotion is interpreted often as love, but true love is deeper than an emotion. And so that true love is there in you towards her. And although this sense of lack will continue for a while until either the situation changes or some kind of healing happens, time can heal too. But more importantly, to focus on the love that you feel for your daughter so that you can virtually feel her presence within you. You can virtually feel that she is here because in that love you are connected. Love is the realization of oneness. So you feel in, at a deeper level you feel one with her, and then the fact that she is not physically there becomes less painful. There's still some pain there, but you're no longer consumed by it. So you have to go deeper where you feel that love, and then you can live with the, the sense of lack that still exists there. And that also applies to those who feel the sense of lack because of an absence of close relationship. You feel, I need somebody, I feel this, the loneliness, I feel the something so important missing. And it is natural if you're to, to feel that. The secret then is connect with your daughter at the deepest level. I would suggest to you that you act, it's not just something that you do for yourself, you actually do reach her at the deepest level when you do that. Whether she knows it or not, she might not know it in her conscious mind, but she will, she will feel that because space becomes irrelevant at that deepest level. Doesn't matter where she is, she could be on another planet and she would feel that. So you have to go there, feel that love, and that love is already, it's no longer the form, it goes deeper than the form, because the form, of course, is not there, the form of her, but the love takes you beyond form, within yourself, and you reach the essence of her beyond the form that she is. And there will be a connection, and you may find that in time, even on the surface level, there will be a reconnection. So that's the, the practice and the way beyond. I'm not saying there will not be some pain anymore, but you will be able to live with it. Thank you.
Oh, well, thank you. I'm actually on a journey to find peace of mind and deep connection. But when I get fired from a contract or when I deal with the death of someone I love, I shut down. And then it's more like, okay, how am I going to survive this day? I just want to get through it. But how do you get to that next level of mastery? Where, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. I would suggest you can you use the the present moment as a portal into the next stage and it works like this there are situations that when you're not absolutely present you suffer this could happen for example if you go to the doctor's office and he tells you you only have a few months to live or it could be that you've lost all your money, no more security, no more investments, nothing left. And I call that allow the life situation, whatever it is, to force you into absolute presence. And absolute presence is, if you ask yourself, if you think your life is problematic, your life situation and failure, problem, dreadful, to help you focus on the present moment, which after all is all there ever is, you ask yourself, what's the problem now? And now means now. What's the problem now? This forces your attention, but you can only do it if you're really fed up with suffering. You don't want suffering anymore. No matter what it is, you need to be fed up enough with suffering that you go there to that place which is t total presence where you say, what's the problem now? There is no problem now. I am breathing. You're not denying anything. You're bringing yourself to reality. It does not diminish your ability to deal with situations and take whatever action is possible or necessary to deal with it. That's fine. But right now, what's the problem now? You're breathing. You're looking around, there's energy in your body, and you have to come to the conclusion that actually right now I'm alive and I'm conscious. And you can sense your own consciousness, which is one with that sense of aliveness. There's only this. And then you're walking somewhere, you're taking one step at a time. Can you single out this moment so that you experience your life so that your life experience, which is now, is not obscured by your life situation. You have the two dimensions. You have your life situation. Everybody here has a life situation. And for many, many people in this world, the majority still, their life situation is problematic. For some, more problematic than others. For you, sometimes you feel it's particularly problematic now. And others, there may be people in this room whose life situation is more problematic than yours. But everybody, there's not a single person whose life situation does not have its set of problems and challenges to do with relationships, with your, your feelings, your job situation, your health situation, your financial situation. All these things make up your, your life situation. 
and you can never escape the problematic nature of, of a life situation. The spiritual practice is you deal with your life situation, you do what you can, but you don't allow yourself, your attention, your consciousness to be consumed by your life situation. And for you to not to be consumed by your life situation, you need to make it your practice to single out the present moment and realize that in this moment you feel alive. You, you go into your within and you can sense that you are aware and conscious at this moment. You can feel your own presence and then you can look around and you can see the sky or the lights and the flowers and the floor and any objects that's there and everything is as it is and it is non, not problematic, it is there in its bare, simple existence in the present moment. The world that's sense perceptions that surround you, your breathing, sense, you're, you're perceiving what you're perceiving and you're aware that there is a presence that is perceiving the world around you and that presence you can sense as yourself that you have exited your life situation and you have gone to a deeper level within yourself, you have accessed a new dimension within yourself where your life situation becomes secondary. And the more you do that, miraculously, your ability to actually deal with your life situation also improves when you do that because you are no longer consumed by it. You have so to speak, risen above it. You have risen above your life situation. It is no longer sucking up all your energy, all your consciousness, which ultimately is your mind, that is where your life situation lives. Your mind is no longer sucking up all your consciousness and then it sucks the life out of you. It's like a, a parasite. So. <laughs> you have to pr practice, ask yourself as a little pointer, a little signpost, ask yourself, what problem do I have at this moment? And invariably, you will find that in this moment you have no problem, if you're really in this moment. And that's the place that you become more comfortable with and you go more deeply into that. And just reminding you one more time, this moment consists of your sense perception right now because everything is present in the moment. Whatever you see or hear or perceive is present right now. And then the deeper part of, of presence is sensing the fact that you are conscious, sensing your own presence. And that requires, when you are in suffering, it requires a certain intensity. And therefore, this is why I'm saying you need to be fed up with suffering, because only if you're really fed up with suffering can you have that intensity that says, no more. I haven't used that expression in a while, but I used to call it the sword of presence. That's like a, in martial, like, a, like you have a sword, you pull this sword, and this sword, you hold this sword, and you cut through time. And you say, now, what's the problem now? Nothing. 
I have no problem now. That requires an intensity. It's not a denial. You're, you're, you're accessing a deeper dimension within yourself. There's no problem now. And then, when, let's say, let's come back to the example I gave, you're traveling, having to see your attorney to sort out the mess. And then finally you arrive at the attorney's office and you're still, you're going into the elevator and you're still, you press the button and you're still in the present moment, there's no problem. And then you arrive at the floor of the attorney and then you open the door and then you sit down and then you start speaking. Then you, of course, you have to enter, you have to address at that moment, you have to address your life situation. But this energy of presence will be still there in the background. So the way in which you deal with things will be different from the way in which you would have dealt with it in the absence of presence. So uh, whenever anybody who perceives they have a very difficult life situation, allow it to force you into the present moment. However, if you want to suffer a bit more, that's fine, then you don't have to do it. <laughs> do I want to be free of suffering? That's the question. Thank you. Just a moment of silence, stillness. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Eckhart Tolle, Essential Teachings, the podcast. You can follow these essential teachings on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, go to Spotify and follow this podcast. Join us next week for more enlightened teachings from Eckhart Tolle. Thank you for listening.